0: If you know the music of Diana Ross and the Supremes, the Jackson Five, the Temptations, the Four Tops, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Smokey Robinson, Martha and the Vandellas, Stevie Wonder, to name just a few, then you know Barry Gordy Jr. He was the man behind all those hits since he was the one who started Motown. Not just interested in selling black music to black people, Barry wanted to create popular music that everybody would love, and he did just that. Before starting Motown, he did whatever he could to make a living, selling pots and pans, unboxing, working on the assembly line, making cars, and then he tried writing songs. That was his love. So how does a young kid from Detroit go on to create Hitsville, USA and craft a legendary sound that is embraced all over the world? Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Motown founder
1: Barry Gordy. So I was selling black newspapers called the Michigan Chronicle in Detroit. People buy all my papers and everything, and I said, well, I've sold as many black papers as I can, and I'm like the number one seller here. I'm going to take these black papers into the white neighborhood because people are the same, I felt. So I went down Woodward Avenue, Detroit, downtown, and I sold more papers than I had ever sold before. It was like incredible. I'm gonna bring my little brother in because we can make a fortune together. So I took him with me the, the next week, and we sold no papers. In the same white neighborhood, Woodward Avenue, downtown, we sold nothing. So I realized then that one black kid was cute, Two were a threat to the neighborhood (laughs) because no one spoke to us. I mean, it's like they saw us coming and they they just moved out of the way. So later when I was going to the record company, my first few albums, I didn't put Black Faces on there. The Miracles album was called Mickey's Monkey and I had a picture of a big ape on there. Then I had an Icy Brothers record and it was with two white lovers at a beach. And then I had a Mary Wells record called Bye Bye Baby where there was a love letter in the mailbox. And they were all hit albums. And so that was a very good lesson learned. So people can tell the book by its cover, which made me realize that all people are full of love. All people are beautiful. And the difference between us is so much less than the sameness. I'm from a family of eight. The boys were always clowns. You know, we were always doing funny things, putting on shows and acting and doing all kinds of stuff. And my mother was a schoolteacher and a scholar. And my sisters were meaningful and they did meaningful things. My father was a very, very hard worker and my idol. I always wanted to be a man like my father. He had muscles of steel. He worked from sunup to sundown. He provided for all of us and he killed rats. And I knew then I could never be a man like my father. And I had heard I wanted to be a man so bad, and I was not that good in school, and uh, I don't know why. I think it's because I was always trying to show off or do something different. For instance, my ABCs, you know, I had a little trouble doing them frontwards, but I could do them backwards with a snap, and I would do it every time somebody asked me. Z Y X W V U T S R Q P O N M L K J I H G F E D C B A, Bang, you know, I was like... Hey, man, you know. And when he just say, that's fine, Barry, but will you please say them front words? And I'll say, do I, do I have to? <laughs> but my sister had given me this poem. She said, you should read this because you may make something out of your life if you, this, this will help you. You want to be a man, you know, study this. And the title was If by Roger Kipling. And it started off with, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, and if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too. I said, oh my goodness, women, that's what's happening to me. It was the first time I realized that I could be a man by doing mental things rather than working sun up to sun down and killing rats, I mean, which I could never do. But at the end of the poem, it said, if you can feel the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of Distance, run. Yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more? You'll be a man, my son. I said, oh my goodness, I could be a man just by my mind. It was just really a wonderful point for me. My mother and father had agreed to have six kids. And so I turned out to be the seventh. But they had this deal that they would each have turns naming the kid and every time it was my father's turn it was a girl he begged her after six kids to have one more because that would be his pick and he was hoping for a boy and I happened to come along but if they had stopped at six there would be no Barry Gordy I'm named Barry Gordy after my father but I'm not it wasn't because I was a, the chosen one <laughs> you know? I had lived that life of feeling special i'm junior so i'm cool you know he waited for the seventh kid to name after himself so there must have been that so by the time i heard the horrible news of i was not supposed to even be here the die had been cast you know i was i was i was too cocky too confident i was still junior you know i was still barry go junior but it sort of let me know that, that wow you know, be cool, little fella, you're not (laughs) that much. But it was a loving family. One of the greatest things that happened to me was being born into the Gordy family. That was the first thing, because it was a family of people. And that's what I would later be a Motown as, as a family. Whenever Joe Lewis fought, it was a holiday for black folks. Because in those days, for a black man to fight for the world championship with a white man, I mean, that was like unheard of. I was eight years old when Joe Lewis knocked out Max Schmeling. And so we're all listening to the radio, the family. And as he knocked him out, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, he's out. It was pandemonium. And everybody in the street was screaming. Lights were on. It was the biggest uh, excitement I had ever seen. All these black folks were just all over, hanging out windows and running and dancing, and it was just incredible. My mother and father were crying, and I'm looking up at them, and I'm saying, what is going on in in, Pop, why are you you crying? You're the strongest man in the world. What are you doing crying? He said, Joe Lewis was a hero of all the people, and he's black like me. See my mother and father crying all these people. And if I could do something like that to make these many people, oh my goodness, I right away s- to my mother and father, I want to be, I wanna be Joe Lewis, you know. I wanna be Joe Lewis. And my father said, now son, there's already a Joe Lewis. You just be the best Barry Gordy junior you can be, and that will make me so proud. I was a great fighter, actually a good professional. I started with the amateurs. I wanted to be Sugar Ray Robinson. First of all, Joe Lewis was my hero, but Sugar Ray became an idol. I was in the midst of trying to make up my mind, music versus boxing, boxing versus music. I loved them both, but people would look down on me because when they said, young man, what do you do? And I said, I write songs. And they said, I know, but what do you do? (laughs) And so I saw these two posters and there was Stan Kenton and Duke Ellington on one, and then there was two boxers on another poster, the boxers were 23 and looked 50, and the band leaders were 50 and looked 23. And something clicked, you know, in my mind. Wait a minute. Then also, no girls. Ten days before a fight, I want music to be my life. <laughs> you know, that that's there's no question there. Once I decided I was fruit boxing, I'm into music. Music is my life. I started writing about everything, paper clips. Faces, boots, <laughs> you know, the sky. I mean, I would write about stuff, you know. I had seen this movie called I'll See You In My Dreams with Danny Thomas and Doris Day. And Danny Thomas was a songwriter. And Doris Day, I admired her so much. So I wrote this song called You Are You for Doris Day. You are you, that's all that matters to me. You are you, and only you can be the one I love and you're for, the one that my heart burns for. Yes, you are you, and that makes you best of all. I sent it off. Doris Day Hollywood (laughs) so uh, uh, my father was a little bit concerned Uh, he said "Uh, Doris Day is not a little far-fetched and I said "Uh, no I I I know she'll die to record it and he says well if you're gonna give up boxing he was very disappointed because I had won all my fights many fights he said well maybe you should get a job (laughs) you know it hurt him to tell me that but Maybe you should get a job. So I did. The automobile plant I went into originally to make money because I couldn't make it writing songs. Writing songs, no one heard of any songwriters ever making any money. After I didn't hear back from Doris Day for months, I took a job here, but I still was into music. So I was on the assembly line and I would work ahead of my staff, get in the cars and and get ahead, and then take time and write songs. And I'd see the cars coming in, one door, bare metal frame, and out another door, a brand new spanking car. I mean, just by the assembly line method. And so loving music and being in music, I felt that, wow, when I start my company, I want that same thing. I want an unknown artist kid, a kid off the street come in one door, an unknown artist and come out another door a, a brand new star if a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay when the truth is I don't want my problems to
0: burden anyone or you say hang it in there,
1: because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak then this is your sign to call text or chat 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime, you don't have to hide how you feel. I got an opportunity to meet a guy named Jackie Wilson who worked with my sisters. They were camera girls in a club. He sang the song I was working on. It was a hit and I was thrilled. But because I quit my job, my wife who had three kids who never understood what I was doing and why I was messing around with songs in the first place, divorced me. Even though I just bought a a new house for the family, after my I saved up enough money to do that, I didn't have a place to stay because I had to leave. Didn't know where to go and didn't know what to do, but I knew that at least, I knew there were several people that loved him, but I knew that one that loved me more than anything in the world, and that was my sister Gwen. I went to her house, with my bags she said well what's what's up what's up and i said well you know my wife's divorced me and uh and i don't even have a home and so she said well why'd you come here and so i said i don't know she said yes you do you know why you came here and then i was kind of tickled at the fact that she was like not taken in by (laughs) my, you know Uh, (laughs) sadness she looked at me and said you know I get the food and I said, i play the piano. I felt so much love and I had tears in my eyes and I realized then how wonderful it was to be loved unconditionally. Wow. And I was feeling so thrilled and happy and sensitive about that great love that she had for me. And the words actually came very easily. Someone to care someone to share lonely hours and moments of despair to be loved to be loved oh what a feeling to be loved (laughs) you know so it was easy and of course that became my big second hit with jackie wilson so that's where the song came out and all my songs were based on that same kind of principle how i felt at the time you know and i wrote what i felt and then i taught other people to write what they felt. And it all came back from you are you, be who you are, and if you're a good person, the world will share all of that. Jackie Wilson had another hit and another hit, and I became fairly well-known as the writer for Jackie Wilson, but I was not making any money. I had to go into business for myself, borrowed money from family savings, which we had, uh, my sister Esther had set up, and no one could get any money from there. But I really wanted to open up my own record company. I wanted to do something. I had all these hits on Jackie Wilson. And they said, yes, well, what do you got to show for it? I said, that's the point. That's the point. I asked for $1,000. They only gave me $800. And so I could start trying to go into business for myself. You know, I found a place on West Grand Boulevard that was a photo studio with two, some big windows in the front, which I loved. And the garage I made into a recording studio we call Studio A. Hitsville, USA was a place where hits were gonna be made, only hits, no flops. My job was to get the hits, and so we tried to create that assembly line approach, and then with them being a star in their music, had to go through this quality control, the same as in the factories, you know, you check this, you check that, and so forth. And that seemed to work very well. Then we had the artist development, which my sisters set up, because they were models and they wanted the people to look good, and so they brought in this woman, Maxine Powell, and she set up this finishing school for them, which had been unheard of. We had a guy from the shot Charlie Atkins, who came in to be the choreographer. And we had other people, Maurice King, that was at the Flame Show Bar when I saw Jackie Wilson. He came in to do the music harmony and stuff with The Temptations and all these people. And we just had this family of people coming in. All purposeful and all a part of this so I had a relationship with every artist every producer every writer I knew them and I talked to them and I would critique their songs true enough we made hits they felt like they were coming into a magical place and it did turn out to be magical people would come to me to audition for me or to sing for me or something The voice was one factor, the quality of the voice, their showmanship and all that, but really who they were as people was much more important to me. And there were many people that had phenomenal voices and were great singers, but they weren't right for Motown. They weren't right for for our family. And so those people that came in that were right for the family, who maybe had great voices but weren't polished or weren't this or weren't that, we knew that we would win we would win, and we did. There are certain ingredients and knowing that a song is a hit. We tried to do songs that would affect us and affect everybody. A song is a very powerful thing in, in somebody's mind, especially young people. And so I explained to all my people that we wanted to be a company that was responsible. A songwriter has a responsibility, I think, and I taught my people what a child hears, he believes. What he believes, he does, he thinks. So we stayed away from songs that were attacking anybody because a lot of people will follow our songs and the song ideas and stuff like that. And so we stayed with that purpose. But because I had such a democratic company, I would lose arguments when we get a song. Cloud Nine is a good example because I said that was a drug record. And I didn't want to put it out. And they outvoted me. And I was very, very upset. And so uh, I released it anyway. And it was our first Grammy. So <laughs> and then somebody came to me afterwards and said, well, it wasn't his first Grammy, so how could it be so bad? And I said, well, it happened and it won, and so that was great. But still, I still think it's the drug record. So <laughs> I had written about three hits for Jackie Wilson: Repetite, To Be Loved, and Lonely Tear Drops. And I was sitting in Jackie Wilson's office working on some songs for Jackie Wilson, trying to figure out what I was going to follow it up with. And a group was auditioning for them. Four boys and a girl. Jackie Wilson's manager stopped them and said, you're too much like the Platters. Goodbye. And I thought they were really good, and I'm sitting there. And then they walked out dejected. So I rushed out to meet them, and I said... You know, Jackie Wilson's manager didn't like you, but but I, I did, you know? And Smokey said, so what, who are you? You know, he thought he, I was auditioning like he was. I said, I'm Barry Gordy. And he said, Barry Gordy, who, who you wrote Rie and To Be Loved? I said, yeah, I know. I said, so who wrote your songs?" She said, I did, and, and I said, you got any more? And he said, oh yeah, yeah, you, you want to hear some more? I said, yes, I'd like to hear what you got. So he pulled out a notebook full of a hundred songs and uh, looked at him, and and so uh, he started singing them. I would hear the first part of them and whatever, and then I would say, uh, okay, okay, uh, that's not good because of this, this, and this. Or that could be better because of this, this, this. And then he he went to the next song, said, well, how about this? And then I kept going and telling him what was wrong with each one, and he got more excited every time I told him something was wrong. His attitude was incredible. Because I would say, what was wrong with it? But then I'd say, well, but you can fix that. That could be easy. You know, you, you got, you're talking in first person here, and you're talking to the same person the next person, but you're referring to them as a third person as if you're talking to somebody else. You know, your poetry is brilliant. I, I've never seen poetry like this, but you don't know how to write songs. You go and listen to the radio and come back. Think, take up all these things I've said and come back with, with something you think you, you got. But then I forgot about him, uh, you know, a week or so later, he rushed into my office and said, I got it. I got it. I listened to the radio, I did what you said, and I got it, man. And I said, well, what is it? He said, it's the answer to the number one record on the radio. I listened to the radio, and it's a record called Get a Job That's Number One, and I got an answer to it. And then he began to sing it. Walked all day till my feet were tired. I was low, I just couldn't get hired. Saw a sign in a grocery store, "Help is light," and we need some more. I got a job. And I said, "Oh my goodness, you know that's incredible. That's wonderful." He, he went on and sang it, and that was how we met. And I said, "That's a hit record," and I'm going to produce it, and I did, and it was a hit record, and it was the starting of their career. In Hittsville, Barry wanted
0: a family-like atmosphere. He started what he called the quality control system. Meetings were held each week, and everybody could vote on what music Motown would release. Everyone could bring in their favorite songs they'd worked on and put them up for a vote. Egos and job titles were checked at the door, even Barry's.
1: One of my philosophies of things was competition breeds champions. We would compete on everything. I mean, when we had these quality control meetings, we competed on the songs. And they knew in that quality control meeting that they were immune to any kind of repercussions of anything. And they could fight about things. And in my company, I created this whole atmosphere of of safety, of ideas and thoughts. Because I was in charge, but I made Logic the boss. And I encouraged them to prove that that was true by attacking me any time they felt, because we were on equal ground there in in these meetings. We had major fights. You know, my record's better than yours. And I said, put it up. Put put them up there, baby. You know, (laughs) be my guest. I would then say, okay, this record won here. And so this is the best record here. But if you had $1 and you were hungry, would you buy this record or a hot dog? (laughs) And <laughs> people would say, Oh, that record by far. And somebody would say, I buy the hot dog. You know, it worked very, very well for a while. And then it had some trouble because sometimes the competition got in the way of the love because everybody loved everybody else. And people would sing on everybody's records, and the Supremes would sing on Marvin Gaye's records, and, and uh, Stevie would play for some people, and Marvin would play drums on other... You know, everybody worked t- together. But the love has to overcome everything else. You've got to really understand people. And by listening, you get to really kind of love people because you know where they're coming from. If you don't know them, you can't love them. If you can't communicate with them, you can't love them.
0: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
1: The first artist to leave was Mary Wells. She was our number one artist, and I always wanted to handle a female singer. When Mary Wells was leaving the company. Her attorney came and met with me, and so I was shocked with that. And I said, "But, but do you know what we do here?" And I went on to tell him this artist development, this Charlie Atkins who teaches choreography, there's Maxine Powell who finishes school, and there's this and there's that. And then we have all these producers that work with her, and she's got a number one record in the country right now. Don't you understand what we do for these people? And he says, "Well, yes, but." Um, You know, you have all this control. And I said, yes, but it's in their favor. I said, look at what's happening here. This is a growing thing. This is something happening. And she is the the forefront. She is our number one female singer right now. And he says, well, my advice to you, he said, I understand what you're saying, but my advice to you, Mr. Gordy, is do half as much as you do for the artist and then spend your other time telling them what you're doing because they don't know. Otherwise, they will never understand. And I said, yes, but... Uh, don't, maybe you don't understand, and they don't understand. They'll only go half as far, and I want them to go all the way because I love them, and I want them to go all the way. And if I did that, then I would just not be happy with myself because it wouldn't work as well. He says, well, I'm sorry. You feel that way. So thank you, and it's nice knowing you, and she left the company. When Mary Wells left, it was such a sad day for me. It was a shock, but I knew that that was... A negative that, that I could make into a, just a wonderful positive because at that time I auditioned these three young girls and I thought they were really, really good. And this lead singer had some of the, the, the biggest and prettiest eyes and she was the force of the group. She had so much personality that the world thought she was flirting with them. I mean, she Could seduce the world and become the number one singer. I said, What grade are you in? And they said, We're all seniors. And I said, Well, go back and come back when you graduate. Because the last thing I wanted to do is take somebody out of school. And so they said, Well, okay, but can we come back after school and work with everybody else? And we just love it here. And I said, Okay, fine. So we did that. And even Diana, during the summer vacation, she asked me if I had any other job for her, anywhere she would do anything. And so I let her work in my office. She was just so enthusiastic, but she would also go and record with other people, and um, the other girls would come, and they were just really into, into the Motown. And so, sometime later, I decided that we would put all the efforts on the Supremes. They had gone for like five years without having a hit. Our financial people, of course, said, Well, why are you sticking with them? And I said, Because they're good. If we believe somebody's good, if they don't get a hit, it's our fault, not theirs. I knew how good they were, and everybody else knew how good they were. So we never gave up on them. And then it just so happens that the Supremes had a record that became one of the top records in the country, very fast, called Where Did I Love Go? And we were lucky enough to get them on the Dick Clark caravan of stars. And they started out at the bottom, and after the tour was over, Where Did I Love Go? by the Supremes was the number one record in the country and I wanted to take them further. After some initial
0: success, Barry felt that the Supremes could become even bigger. His dream was for them to be the number one vocal group in the world. Instead of pop songs, he wanted Diana to take a risk and sing some classic American standards. Songs like You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You, which he would would introduce them to a whole new and much broader audience. The plan was to give these songs a trial run in England before coming back to the U.S. to debut them on national
1: TV. We had agreed that the first song that they would do would be You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You in order to prepare themselves to come back and do it on national TV. We tried out the You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You in England And we had our first major argument. When we got to Manchester, she had done it once and refused to do it the second time because the audience didn't like it and she didn't like it either. And one thing about Diana, she was always so concerned about her audience. I said, I want you to do this because I want to get you in places like the Copacabana in New York. And they said, they don't want girls, people like us. They, I said, I know, they want Sammy Davis, you know, there's and so forth. But they can only do standards. You can do standards and R&B and, and other stuff and blues and everything. I said, so you all are great and I want to expose you to these people. And I had this whole master plan for when we get back, we would just take it and sweep the world. But you, first, we got to get national TV. But I could not explain anything to her. That made sense to her. She refused to do it completely. I even told her, look, you're doing it here for a few hundred people. You're going to do it back home for millions. got to do it. She said, I'm not. I said, OK. So I walked out, and then my life left (laughs) my stomach. I mean, because if she didn't do it, I knew I could not manage them again, and my life was over. I heard her singing it in the show. I couldn't believe that it was happening because I was so down. And after I realized that she was really doing the song, it was like the happiest day of my life. And I realized how much I really did love this woman. That was it, you know, that was just it. And uh, when I told her how happy I was, she just said, I did it for you. Well, it was Suzanne in the past that grabbed me one day, and she said, there's a kids' group, you got to see, they're auditioning in the next room, and we just love them, and you're going to love them. And uh, I said, I don't have time. In fact, I don't like kids' group, I don't want kids' group. You know, I've got Stevie Wonder, who has a major entourage. He had his mother, he had a tutor and a chaperone, and a lot of people traveling with him. So I said, no, the last thing I want is a kids' group. And so she said, but do you want, you want them? I said, I won't, I won't. And so she kind of drugged me into the audition room. And when I saw this kid was doing all this stuff and he was doing a James Brown thing and he did a twirl and a split. And then she said, you still don't like kids' group? And I said, no, I don't. Get my camera, get my camera. (laughs) So When they got through, I noticed he was doing his thing. On a stage, he was one kind of person. You know, he was like this master of what he was doing as a kid. And then when he got through, he was very quiet and almost shy. But he, he stared at me. The other kids, getting ready for the next song, they'd be playing with the instruments, and Michael was always there, and he was just staring at me, really in an innocent way, watching every move I made and everything. And finally, I went to them, and, and they said, are you going to sign us? Because I, I couldn't make up my mind, because I was concerned that he was a kid who was about, eight years old, seven, eight years old, singing a Smokey song that seemed like he had been living it for 30 years. So right away we were saying, this is an old man in a kid's body because he sung Who's Loving You better than Smokey. And Smokey did a phenomenal job, but this kid was like something, you know, he'd been here before. And then after singing that, he went back into the child mode. I told Suzanne that they're going to need something that a kid would sing, so I just came up with kind of a melody of my own. Oh, baby, da-da-dee-da-dee, da, da 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 I said, he should sing something like that. And then we did The Love You Save and I'll Be There. And that made history because there's been no other group, I think, for or since, that is, at their first four records, go to number one. So it was like a major feat, and they became the biggest thing suzanne was responsible for dressing them up and she put him on the little hats and they did the sullivan show and he used to complain to me about his childhood and i'd say you don't have such a bad childhood michael i mean you're doing what you want to do and if people could have that same passion at an early age eight or nine and then do it for the rest of their life my goodness <laughs> you know so that was michael
0: at its height Motown's success was almost inconceivable. In the years between 1961 to 1971, Motown had 110 top 10 Billboard hits. But Motown was clearly much more than hits. It gave us some of the most talented musicians the world has ever seen. It was music that brought people together. It made us all dance together. It truly did change the world and the way we reacted to each other. And it all started with one man's vision to make music that moved the hearts of everybody that listened to it. And that makes Barry
1: Gordy a master. My life's work is music. I have always loved it. I've always wanted to produce it. I followed my dreams, my father's advice. And also I learned from a lot of people. I think Mootown gave the world joy. I think it brought people together in so many ways. Many of them loved Motown so much, and they still do. And they had marriage to Motown music, kids to Motown music, and we were just doing music that we loved. And I believed that all people would love this music, and not just black people, it was all people. It's something that I believed in, that I fought for because my music was at one point too white for the black people and too black for the white people. And it was the atmosphere at Motown that cured everything because the love, it was the love, atmosphere of love and that's what gave it the magic that it had then that it has today and that it will always have. Motown music is music for everyone. It's music for everyone.
0: I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.
1: Have you ever wondered what the stars have to say about your favorite artists and writers?